Well, what's up, Salt Company? You guys can go ahead and find a seat. Find a seat, find a seat. Take a load up off your feet. How's everybody doing? Woo! Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Timmy Lopez, and I'm on staff here at the Salt Company. And if it's your first time here tonight, I just want to say on behalf of Salt Staff and Candeo Church, just welcome. We are really glad that you're here. We love Salt Company. A um, little bit about me. I was born and raised in Louisiana, way down south. And uh, I went to college at LSU, met my wife there. We were involved in a college ministry, very similar to Salt Company, out of a church very similar to Candeo. And so the reason we ended up here is because it bothered us that there were so many universities out there, and there still are so many universities in America and around the world that don't have a college ministry out of a church like you guys have right here, a place where students can come as they are and meet Jesus as he is. And so uh, Ernie Benoit, who's the lead pastor for the Cincinnati church plan that Candeo is sending this fall, reached out to me about a year ago um, about the salt director position. And we said yes, and we moved up here to the cold tundra of America. Kelsey, I know you said you love it, but it is so cold. Uh, back in August, and we have been here since. And we love Candeo. We love what God is doing here in the Salt Network and how they are all about planning churches near major universities in hopes of reaching the next generation. And so we're about that too. Um, and we have loved being here. And we're actually heading to Cincinnati tomorrow because we got a house this week. So we're excited about that. Um, it's really scary when you buy your first house. I have no idea what I'm doing. But uh, when I was in eighth grade, I got a detention for, for, for jumping. And if you're like my parents, they're like, well, what's the rest of that story? Okay, and there is more to that story. Uh, what had happened was, is our teacher didn't come in after lunch period that day. And our English class happened to be right above the computer lab. So we're on the second floor, computer lab's the first floor. Now, Ms. Flo, the computer lab instructor or teacher, and I never really got along that well. In fact, there was one semester where I made all A's in all of my classes, but a B in computer lab because I typed like 20 words a minute with my T-Rex fingers, okay? And, and so I came up with this brilliant idea of, hey guys, how about we all jump in unison and make a ruckus in the computer lab? Like, Ms. Flo would love that. And so I said, in fact, just to make sure it works, Y'all count to 30, I'll run downstairs and I'll see if, if it's even noticeable. Okay, so I, go, I run down the stairs, run, kind of open the door in the computer lab, 27, 28, 29. And I literally see the ceiling like moving like a cartoon. It, it, was, it was crazy. And so I'm like, yes, this is the greatest thing ever as an eighth grader. And so I run back up the stairs. I'm like, one, two, three, boom, we're all jumping. One, two, three, door opens. And there is a teacher from... Uh, the room next door, name is Vincent, who we ended up not getting off on the best foot forward. Um, I wonder why. But she singled me out and one other kid and sent us to the disciplinarian. And Coach Robert would always tell me, Tim, you're gonna have a great and wonderful life if you ever fully surrender to God. And if you've been here the last two weeks, we've been talking about this man named Abraham who in many ways, God was trying to teach him to fully surrender everything to him. And so we're gonna be continuing uh, the Abraham story tonight and we'll be in Genesis 22. 
if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there and we will start in verse one. So verse one of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, by the way. So um, you probably don't need the table of contents for this one, but we'll be in chapter 22, verse one. It says, after these things, now, as you guys are reading your Bible and you see a phrase like after these things or therefore or since, it is really good to go to the sections previously to try to understand what the author is about to be talking about in this next context that you're about to read. And so if you've missed the last two weeks, we've been uh, going through the life of this man named Abraham. And we started back in Genesis 12, where God calls this man named Abram, who was 75 years old, just a normal man who was married to a woman named Sarai, and she was 65, and she was barren, meaning they were unable to have kids. So they were just your normal, old, average couple that had nothing special about them. But God chose Abraham and he said, hey, go to a land that I will show you, pack up all your stuff and leave, and I will turn you into a great nation. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. But through your offspring, through this nation that I will make, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And so Abraham packed up his stuff, showing that he trusted God and he moved away from his family out to this land that God would show him. And, uh, and you know, throughout the story, we see that this man is flawed and constantly he's, he is making uh, decisions left and right to look for other things to place his trust in. Like two times, he's afraid that this king may take his life because he'll wanna be with his wife, that he just kind of pimps her out and lets this man sleep with his wife. Like two times, and fear that God won't protect him, he lies. And we see Abraham over and over continuing to look for other things to trust and yet God remains faithful and protects him and, and guards his marriage. And then in chapter 15, last week, we saw that Abraham years and years had gone by. He still has no offspring. He still has no kid and he's complaining to God about it. And then God drags him outside and has this moment. He says, look up at the stars, number them count them. And he says, so shall your offspring be. And in Genesis 15, six, we see that Abraham believed God, he trusted God, and God accredited it to him as righteousness. But if you continue in the story, we see once again, Abraham and Sarah try to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah says, you know, they, they still don't have this kid. He said, how about you go sleep with your servant, Hagar? And so he goes, sinfully sleeps with this maidservant Hagar and has this son named Ishmael. But God goes to him and says, this isn't the son that I promised you. I'm going to give you a son through your marriage with Sarah. And in fact, 25 years had gone by and God goes to Abraham and predicts the exact time. And Sarah at the age of 90, set the Guinness world record to having the baby at the oldest age, okay? And God had finally fulfilled this promise. And so this is what's been happening. But imagine that for a second. That is 25 years of waiting. You left everything for this promise that God said he would fulfill. You've waited 25 years. You made mistakes along the way, yet God has been faithful and has not abandoned you. And finally, God fulfills his promise to Abraham. 
And so that's where we'll pick up tonight. And at this point in the story in Genesis 22, most Old Testament scholars will say that Isaac was about 15 years old now. That's the baby that, um, that Abraham and Sarah had just had. So we'll be in, in verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And you're like, what did we just read? Yes, God literally just looked at this man, Abraham, and said, hey, take your son, go to the mountain that I'll show you and offer him as a burnt offering. And so in order for us to understand what is happening here, we need to, to unpack some things. And so the first thing we're gonna talk about tonight is, is why sacrifices? Like why did they even have sacrifices in the first place? And if you were here two weeks ago, Stephen went back to Genesis one through three, which is where we see the story of creation. And what we find out in Genesis one is that God has always existed. He has no beginning and no end and God created the world. And when he created it, everything was perfect. There was no pain, there was no suffering. Everything was perfect as he had planned. And at the pinnacle of God's creation or the climax, he made man in his own image. He made Adam and Eve. And God gave them one rule. He said, you may eat of anything in the garden, but of this one fruit, do not eat. And I don't, we don't know how long went by, but uh, the serpent or Satan comes to them in chapter three and deceives them and they reject God and they disobey God. And it's because of their rejection of God and their sin that our world is the way that it is today. That maybe you've lost loved ones in your life and you felt pain or suffering or any time you've ever seen injustice in the world. It's because you and I are now living in a broken world as a result of humanity sinning against God. However, what we see is, is that the first thing that Adam and Eve realize is that, you know, they're naked now. And they said, you know, they were ashamed and so they hid, but God doesn't approach them in anger. In fact, he goes to them graciously and he gives Eve this promise that, that Stephen talked with us about two weeks ago, where he looked at her and he said, uh, I will put enmity or tension between your offspring talking about Eve's offspring and the serpent's, Satan's. And the serpent's offspring is gonna strike your offspring's heel, but yours is gonna crush his head. And that is the first prophecy of Jesus one day coming. And you see what happens there is rather than God justly going and just wiping out his creation and starting over, he graciously goes to them and gives them a picture of hope of how one day he will provide for them. However, God is also just in his nature and he has to punish sin. And so that's why Paul would write in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. In other words, a wage is, is what we earn, okay? And so what we earn from sinning against God is death, but not just a physical death, but also a spiritual and eternal punishment. And that's why in Hebrews 9, 27, it would say, just as it's appointed for man to die once, we all have a time where we are gonna die. 
Nobody lives forever. But after this comes judgment and there will be a day where we all stand before God. And for those who have sinned against him, which is all of us, there is very harsh consequences coming and they will be subjected to his wrath for eternity. And if you're anything like me, you'd ask, well, man, that seems really harsh. Like, how could God do that? That does not seem fair. But I heard this analogy once and it was really helpful for me in just understanding the severity of us rebelling against God. And so, um, you know, imagine one day I'm walking on UNI's campus and I see Stephen and he's walking his dog and I go up to, to Stephen's dog and I punch his dog right in the face, right? What's gonna happen? It's kind of funny. Uh, the dog will go, probably, it may try to bite me. Stephen's probably gonna wanna fight me. Will I go to jail? Most likely not. But say instead of punching this dog in the face, I go and I square Stephen up right in the face, okay? Well, now the consequences will probably grow a little bit. I may have some community service or some jail time for attempted battery, but say somehow I make it across the big pond and I get into Buckingham Palace and I go up and I freaking punch the Queen of England right in the face, okay? What is gonna happen to me? Probably be shot on the spot or locked up in jail for high treason. And that makes sense to us, why? Because the greater the authority that we rebel against, then the greater the consequence to rebel against that authority. So how much more to rebel against perfect and holy, eternal, almighty God and to give him the finger and do what we wanna do and choose our ways over him. And so that's why the cost of sinning against God is so severe. And if you continue in Genesis 3 uh, with Adam and Eve, you see, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, so back to the why sacrifices. You see, something had to die. An animal had to be sacrificed in order for them to be clothed. They needed a substitute to take their place. At first, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they realized they were naked. They tried to make fig leaves for themselves as clothes but much like any type of righteousness we try to provide for ourselves, it is never enough. We need God to provide. And so God did. And in the very next chapter in Genesis four, we see the sacrificial system continued with this man named Abel who brought his first of his, uh, his sheep, the firstborn of his sheep to God and sacrificed it as a burnt offering. And the reason that, that, that he would do this is we find out in Hebrews 9.22 is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this sacrificial system that we see throughout the Old Testament was to point to man's need for a substitute to stand in their place for the cost of our sinning against God. And so when God commands Abraham to go and offer Isaac as a burnt offering, Abraham knew that God was just and fair in asking this, and he immediately obeys God. Let's continue in our text. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went up to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, as three days had gone by and he's still remaining obedient. He lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? You see, Isaac had seen this before. This wasn't new to him. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I'm sure throughout this test that Abraham had to be thinking, God, what are you doing? Like this doesn't make much sense. I know this because so often as I walk through trials and we walk through trials, it is very easy to question, God, what are you doing? And the biggest one for my wife, Lindsay and I, that we've been walking through recently has been in the last two and a half months. Two and a half months ago when we were in Louisiana visiting family over Christmas, um, my wife's brother passed away and he was 19 and he was in his freshman year at LSU and, and it was unexpected. And, and honestly, one of the most horrific things that we've ever walked through. And it's moments like this where we just wanna feel and wonder, God, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. This isn't how I would have drawn it up. God, it's hard being away from family and I know you're calling us to Cincinnati, but this is difficult. But Lindsay and I, we keep trying to remind ourselves of who God is and the promises that he's given us and how he's never failed us. And we keep going at the task that he's called us to. And we keep trying to remind ourselves daily that even though we've been faithless many times, God has always been faithful. And so our next point that we're gonna look at is God desires we trust him even when we don't fully understand. You see, in one way, Abraham knew God was just in asking this of him because he owed God everything. Yet in another way, Abraham probably didn't understand at all why God was asking this. And it didn't make much sense. And he probably would have been like, God, you know, you, you promised me this son, Isaac, you know, years and years ago, and you, and you said you'd turn him into a great nation. And now you've provided him. And you said, it's through this son that you're gonna bless all the peoples of the earth. But now you want me to sacrifice him? Like that doesn't make sense. How can you use him if he's not even alive anymore? But you see, though I'm sure Abraham didn't understand all this, he had also been learning to trust God. For the last 40 years, God had been maturing and growing Abraham. You see, throughout the time where Abraham was struggling trusting God and following him and being obedient to him, God was constantly providing for him every single need. And God waited 25 years for his barren wife, who was labeled barren in society to not be able to, to have any kids, he waited till she was 90 so that there was no question that this was a sovereign act of God. 
and God had been maturing Abraham and growing him. And so Abraham didn't know what God was gonna do. And in fact, the author of Hebrews gives us a little bit of insight to this. Um, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. You see, because Abraham knew who God was and he had seen God acting in his life throughout history and always fulfilling his promises, Abraham was able to trust God because he knows God will not fail me. Like, I wanna be clear on this. It was not Abraham's character that drove him up this mountain. It was not because of Abraham's character. It was because Abraham's confidence and trust was in the goodness and gracious heavenly father that he had. And he knew that God had made a promise. And when God makes a promise, he will always fulfill it. And so Abraham knew, I'm not able, but God is able. And so notice when Isaac asked, dad, where is the lamb? I see the other elements here, but where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham responded with, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now let me ask you, how do you respond when God calls you to trust him amidst different trials that you're walking through? Or maybe how, does, how do you respond when God gives you commands in scripture that you don't quite understand? Do you try to make small compromises? I often try to downplay sin and try to make it not that big of a deal. Maybe right now you're trying to date in a way that you think is best, but not in a way that honors the Lord because you don't quite understand his commands. I would encourage you to look back at the promises of God and trust in the character of God and follow him because he knows what is best. This is why it's so important to know God's word and to spend time in it daily, which is why the psalmist would say, you know, how does a young man keep his way pure? I've hidden your word on my heart. He knows the word of God. He speaks it to himself. He meditates on it day and night. And listen, Abraham didn't march up that mountain trying to earn God's approval either because we learned last week he had it. It said, when Abraham believed in God, God declared him to be righteous. And it was in response to the goodness and grace of God that Abraham remained obedient to the father. And so let's continue in this text. Um, verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. 
And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of, of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Our third point is we can trust God because God will always fulfill his promises. Do you see the similarities between this story and another? Because centuries and centuries later, another father and another son would travel up this same mountain. If you didn't know this, Moriah is actually present day Jerusalem where there is a mount called Golgotha or Calvary. And like Isaac, the son would also carry the wood for the offering. And like Isaac was bound, so would the son of God be bound and nailed to the tree. Only this time, the father did not have his hand held back, but he plunged the knife into his son and he poured out his wrath on his son. And you see, there was no substitute ram that day for Jesus like there was for Isaac. Do you see the point? Listen, Jesus is the substitute lamb. He is the substitute lamb that was provided for Isaac. Jesus is the substitute lamb that was provided for Abraham. Jesus is the substitute lamb that was provided for me. And Jesus is the substitute lamb that was provided for you. He was the perfect sacrifice, which is why John would say when he saw Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In this story, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus would walk on earth, it's as if God were conducting a drama of what he would one day do so that he could save the world. He was pointing out their need for a sacrifice, their need for God to provide the lamb. Notice Abraham names the place on the mount, uh, God shall provide, not how awesome my obedience is or how faithful I am. So let me ask you, have you trusted in Jesus, the only worthy substitute, the only spotless lamb who can take away the sins of the world? And yes, this same seed, Jesus Christ, was the one that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that would one day come and crush the serpent's head. It all points to Jesus. The world will say your greatest need, the culture will say your greatest need is, is family or education or achievements or to be loved or you fill in the blank. But when we look at the Bible, the truth is all of our greatest needs is that we need peace with God and we need righteousness in order to be acceptable to God. But what we have is sin. And God, on the other hand, has what we need, which is righteousness, but we don't deserve it. And rather than let Abraham and Isaac try to aimlessly work their way back up to God or let us try to work our way back up to God, whether through offering our own sacrifices, no, God looked at 
his only son, the perfect lamb of God, who was the only one worthy to live the life that we were required to, to live. And he said, go, go live that life that they were required to live and take their place on the cross. And God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived my life and as if he lived your life and as if he lived Abraham's life. And for those who look to Jesus and trust in him, they can have life because praise God, three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he has conquered death. And so for the believers, for those here tonight who have trusted in Jesus, let me ask you, are there areas in your life right now that you're trying to hold on to, that you don't wanna surrender to God? Maybe you have unconfessed sin that you're concealing because you're afraid how others may view you. Maybe you just wanna continue in them. I, I, I would encourage you to bring those into the light and confess those to one another and remind one another of the grace that you have in Jesus and the security that you have in Jesus. Maybe God is calling you and leading you to go share Jesus with your neighbors or with your classmates or with a family member. And maybe you're afraid of how you might lose their approval or how you might look in the eyes of men. I would encourage you rest in the promises of God and who he declares you to be. Focus on how God sees you not how man does. I would encourage you in response to what God has done, not in order to earn approval. Nothing we can do can give us right standing with God. We needed a substitute. Look to Jesus, the one who was the substitute and trust in him and surrender your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that we have access to and um, just that we can open it together tonight and see who you are and what you've done so that we can have life. Help the good news of what Jesus has done, not to become numb to our, our ears. It still gives me chills as I think about Jesus taking my place on the cross and bearing the punishment that I deserved. That doesn't make any sense but it definitely helps me to trust you, God. And so I pray that that would bring confidence to us tonight and we would be able to rest in that grace tonight. And Lord, in response to how you've lavished your love and grace on us, may you fill us with your spirit and lead us in obedience to you to help others know you 